the government, the state, wants to provision itself. It wants soldiers for defense. It wants public health. It wants public education, whatever it wants. It's decided, you know, it wants collective action to do this. And somehow it's got to command the resources, the real resources, the people, the food, the weapons from the private sector into the public sector, because the public sector has nothing. And day one, it starts with just a concept. Okay. Well, how do you get resources that people have out of their hands into the government sector? Okay. So what we do is we impose a tax liability. Now, notice I didn't say we collect a tax. So you have a, a property tax in everybody's houses for, to, to uh, keep it simple. But what is the tax liability payable in this thing nobody's ever heard of called the Australian dollar before? They just made this up. What does that do to people? Well, if you don't pay, what happens? You're going to lose your house. So number one, it, there's this tremendous anxiety now. Because now everybody owes, owes all these Australian dollars and there is no such thing. And then the government says, oh, by the way, if you serve in the military, I'll pay you 50,000 of these a year. If you sell me a bag of potato chips, I'll give you $5. Okay? It gives us a list of things that you can do to earn the money to pay the tax. And why is the government doing this? Because what it wants is soldiers and potato chips, right? And so, number one, they put a tax liability on to create an army of people <laughs> who need the money to pay the tax looking for some way to earn the money. Now, what do we call people looking for paid work who can't find it? Unemployment. Okay, so that's the source of unemployment. The tax liability by design creates unemployment for the further purpose of the government now being able to hire the people that the tax caused to be unemployed so that it can provision the public health and then build the infrastructure and have a defense, okay? And so now people go to the government get paid, and then they pay the tax. I'm joined today by David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. That's good to hear. We're also joined by a very special guest, Warren Mosler, a founder of MMT and a pioneer of the understanding of monetary operations within that field. Welcome to the podcast, Warren. Good to be here. Thank you for the introduction. Warren, there are so many places we could start having read a couple of your books and regularly looking at your website and just going, wow, you've worked out so many things and applied them practically, which appeals to me very much because a big part of what I teach, whether in universities or in consultancy, is teaching people how to practically deal with complex problems. Could you explain, just to get the audience started from a different perspective on MMT, because they're used to us having you know, Stephen Hale on fairly regularly, and we've had Stephanie Kelton on, and we've talked to Bill Mitchell. What in particular you brought to MMT, what your observations were, and how they added into the growing picture? Okay, so I think that would be the side of what's called monetary operations, how central banks actually work, the debits and the credits that might seem like dry types of things, but that's where I showed that the mainstream had it backwards. And the biggest thing they had backwards is sequencing. Okay, everybody you talk to, every MP thinks they have to get money, Australian dollars, to be able to spend. So they put a tax on to get the money to spend. What they don't tax, they have to borrow to get the money to spend, okay? And then when they borrow it, you know, they leave the debt to their grandchildren or whatever to pay back later. 
the money comes from somewhere else and they have to get it. Okay, that's a fair statement. What I brought is, I'll give you the technical term because that's why I'm here. But if you ask anybody in the central bank, they say things like, look, we can't do a reserve drain until after we do a reserve ad. What they're saying is we have to spend the money first. We have to credit the accounts of the member banks and the member banks represent everybody in the economy. They have the checking accounts and savings accounts for everybody in the economy. But they can't pay us until after we pay them. And, and they call their the reserve banks because the reserve banks, they have accounts, bank accounts like any other bank, but they give them a fancy name. So instead of a checking account, they call it a reserve account, and uh, which I'll talk about later. Instead of a savings account, they call it a treasury security or a treasury bond or a treasury note or a treasury bill. But in, inside the banks, they call those securities accounts. So they have reserve accounts and securities accounts, which are analogous to checking accounts and savings accounts at any normal bank. And so what they say is, look, if, the, if we just sold some bonds and the banks have to pay us, we have to give them the money first before they can pay us. If there's a big tax day and they have to pay us, we have to give them the money first before they can pay us. The money to pay taxes and buy bonds comes from us. Because if you think about it, the Reserve Bank is just a spreadsheet. It's just a ledger, okay? And the way you you have, you have open up an account at the Reserve Bank, well, how do you get any numbers in your account? They have to put them there. You know, you, nobody walks in with, you know, at night or something and sneaks numbers onto the Reserve Bank's statements. They have to put them there. So when, they, when the Treasury pays somebody, they instruct the Reserve Bank to credit the account of whoever's getting paid. And that means they just change whatever number was in there to a higher number. But it comes from them. They, they make all the debits and credits on their own books. Every bank does it. No bank has coming in from the outside telling them that the savings account went up or went down or something. You know, they, they have to make those entries into their own book. Am I getting too technical for you? No, absolutely fine. Because like I said before, if I was talking to central bankers, I'd have to dumb this down. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. So what they say is we can't subtract money out of anybody's account until after we add it. Because it wouldn't be there. And if we subtract money from an account, we debit an account that doesn't have a balance in it, it now has a negative balance, an overdraft. An overdraft is a loan from the Reserve Bank. And a loan is a payment. They're giving you the money. They're making the payment in the form of an overdraft. So they can't do a reserve drain without first doing a reserve ad. And what that means is these MPs that think that the government has to get money first to be able to spend it taxing or borrowing, they have it backwards. It's the banking system, the economy, the taxpayers that have to get the money first from the government to be able to pay their taxes or buy bonds. That's where it comes from. Now, no, nobody thinks the movie theater has to collect the ticket first and then sell it. Nobody thinks the stadium, football stadium, has to collect the ticket first and then sell it. Everybody knows they sell the ticket first and then collect it. Like why? Because that's where they come from. This is not this is not hard stuff, right? It's well, think of the dollars as the tickets of the government. They can't collect them first and then spend them. They have to spend them first and then collect them. Because they're the source. It comes from the source first. And there's strict laws uh, with severe penalties if you try to be the source, write bad checks, or you know, counterfeit print your own money, you get in serious trouble for that because that's the only way it works. Okay, it can't work if everybody else could just print up their own money and use it. It only works because it's a monopoly. The government 
all the funds to pay taxes come from the government. All the funds to buy bonds come from the government. Now you have to add to that the government or its agent. And this is where these various economists or whatever will come after me and say, you're wrong. You can, the banks can make loans and people can use that money to pay taxes. It doesn't have to come from the government. Okay, and what I'll tell you is when the bank makes a loan, those dollars are coming from the government because the bank is acting as agent for the government. It's a member so of the reserve. This is the spot. I'm just going to jump in for a minute to make yeah. sure we clarify this for me and for listeners. So yeah. even if I went and go to get a loan to you know buy a house, the reality is that money, they're going to lend it to me, but the government is going to put it in their account first to lend it to me. That's the implication. No, that, that, they'll put yeah. it, that, that bank will put it in your account at that bank. But it, right. it, does it, it does it acting as agent for the government. Okay, the government permits it to have a banking license. Um, the um, government has all the regulations that says you can make a loan for somebody's house, but you can't lend them against something else. They set all the collateral rules, right? right. The government says... He has to have at least a 10% down payment or 20, but they make those rules. Okay. The government says, if we don't like your bank officers, we can replace them. That's part of the regulation. Okay. The, the government controls all the assets the bank is allowed to own. A bank chance, U.S. banks can't go out and buy stocks, for example, like Japanese banks can, because the government says you can't do that. Okay. So all the regulations set the, what they call the asset quality of the bank. The loans become assets. When they loan you money, that's an asset of the bank. They can only do it in com full compliance with what the government allows. And they have examiners to come to make sure that they only made loans that comply with government regulations. The government guarantees deposits. You have deposit insurance, right? So that means the depositors are not at risk. It's the government that's at risk for what you do. And the government so really, regulates. In a sense, banks yeah. are one of the first things that governments outsourced what they do by giving them such a clear rule book. You can yeah. do this, this, and this in this way so that we don't have to manage the money system. We'll give you a very clear set of guidelines in which right. you can get on with it as long as you stay inside the rules. Yeah, it's like if you hire somebody to prepare your taxes. Yeah. He can only do it on your behalf. He can't just go out and prepare your taxes without telling you. Yep. Okay, and or if you've got a real estate agent, can't just sell your house without you signing and telling you about it. He's acting as your agent. And so, and even the military, you know, the U.S. military, the soldier gets to this point his gun a little bit. So he has freedom to point his gun and he gets paid. But is he, but he's still, you know, public. It's not private just because he has a degree of freedom. So banks have a degree of freedom, which is they get to price the loans. They get to decide how much interest to charge you. And that they can do. And they decide how much interest to pay their depositors. And so what the government does is it charters a lot of banks. We have 5,000, I don't know how many you have, and puts them all in competition with each other. So whoever pays the depositors most gets the deposits. Whoever charges the least for a loan wins the business. And that's all set up by the state. So in reality, yeah. bank yeah. interest is just the way that banks make profit to do the outsourced business of managing yeah. money within the economy that yes. the government has a sense licensed to them. Yes, and to keep That's them from making and to keep them from making excess profit, the government puts them in competition with each other. Bank can't charge whatever they want. You go to the next bank. In theory, I know, in practicing, there are times it's not practical, but that's, you know, that's the concept behind it. The other thing the banks have, which nobody else has, 
is they have an account at the Federal Reserve. It's called the Reserve Account. So they have a checking account at the uh, Reserve Bank of Australia, in your case. So your member banks have accounts at the bank. Nobody else does. Foreign governments, foreign central banks can have accounts there, but not individuals. If an individual wants an account, he has to go do it at one of these central banks, one of the reserves banks, agents. They've subbed that out. Okay, just like they'll hire contractors to do all kinds of things for you. So they're contractors of the government. So part of the contract says, you make a loan, it creates a deposit under our terms and conditions. We will accept that deposit for payment of taxes. We will then debit your account at the reserve bank when somebody pays their taxes. So when I borrow money from a bank, I can use that money to pay taxes because that's how the reserve bank, that's how the government, the legislature, parliament set it up. Okay, if I'm not a member, I can't do that. I'm not a member bank. If you go to a non-bank, private bank, offshore bank, whatever, they can't do that. They have to work through a correspondent bank that is a member to be able to have your dollars used to pay taxes. That's a way of closing the circle from how money is created to how it is used to then, you know, how tax is collected, just to make sure there's a full cycle and you can essentially track the movement creation of money. Well, it's, okay, it's more than that. It's a public monopoly that's set up for its purpose. So the, the, the real beginning to this story is what's the point of this whole thing? Okay, what's the, what's the prime point of the whole thing that you know, everything rests on? And that is the government, the state, wants to provision itself. It wants soldiers for defense. It wants public health. It wants public education, whatever it wants. It's decided, you know, it wants collective action to do this. And somehow it's got to command the resources, the real resources, the people, the food, the weapons from the private sector into the public sector because the public sector has nothing. And day one, it starts with just a concept. Okay. Well, how do you get resources that people have out of their hands into the government sector? Well, you know, in the old days, they, Rome would conquer someplace and take slaves and they'd come back and build things, maybe, or something like that. Or the British Navy, you know, you go to a bar and you, you know, drink too much and you wake up. Yeah, yeah, impress sailors. And you wake up on a boat, right? (laughs) And drinking your grog every day. So, you know, those are ways to get resources from the private sector to the public sector. But we pretend to be more civilized. Okay, so what we do is we impose a tax liability. Now, notice I didn't say we collect a tax. But we oppose a tax liability. Let's do a simple one. Income taxes and VAT, that gets complicated. Let's do a simple one so we can all understand. And it could be a tax on your house. Everybody has a house. Or it could be a tax on your, each person pays. It's called a head tax. But let's just say a real estate tax. Everybody has a tax they have to pay on their house. And if you're renting, you don't have to pay it, but the landlord does. So he has to charge you certainly enough to cover his tax. So you have a, a property tax on everybody's houses for to, to uh, keep it simple. But what is a tax liability payable in this thing nobody's ever heard of called the Australian dollar before? They just made this up. What does that do to people? Well, if you don't pay, what happens? You're going to lose your house. So number one, it, there's this tremendous anxiety now because now everybody owes all these Australian dollars and there is no such thing. And then the government says, oh, by the way, if you serve in the military, I'll pay you 50000 of these a year. If you sell me a bag of potato chips, I'll give you $5. Okay? It gives us a list of things that you can do to earn the money to pay the tax. And why is the government doing this? Because what it wants is soldiers and potato chips, right? 
And so number one, they put a tax liability on to create an army of people who need the money to pay the tax looking for some way to earn the money. Now, what do we call people looking for paid work who can't find it? Unemployed. unemployed. Okay, so that's the source of unemployment. The tax liability by design creates unemployment for the further purpose of the government now being able to hire the people that the tax caused to be unemployed so that it can provision the public health and then build the infrastructure and have a defense, okay? And so now people go to the government, get paid, and then they pay the tax. Okay, so what I showed, and I'm not saying I'm the first person in history to understand this, I'm not. There was a time when everybody understood this hundreds of years ago. Alfred the Great did this. That's how his whole empire was run. Roman Empire did this. They imposed a tax on people payable in Roman coins, and people had to sell things to Rome to get the money to pay the tax. So they put a tax on Gaul after they conquered it, and then they had to sell wheat or whatever they were growing back then, corn, to get the money to pay the tax. The British would put a tax on the Irish, British pounds. They had to sell potatoes to England to get the money to pay the tax. When yeah, they this had the, is potatoes, the original example that Stephen Hale gave us of yeah. Yeah, the Brits in Africa. Yes, going, yeah. Hi, would you like to come and work on our plantation? And of course, the indigenous person said, no. So the Brits said, hi, hut tax. Pay or we burn yeah. your hut down. And you can only yep. pay in our coin. Oh, now come work. And that was a wonderful penny drop for me because I'd read David yep. Graeber's book, you know, Debt the First 5,000 Years, and gone, yep. hang on, when did we lose this? Because quite clearly the whole ancient world understood this. Yes, yes, yes. yes. That's what I'm saying. How did it fall off the scale? Like how did we, because obviously banks have been around in some form doing a similar thing for what? Yep. The, the Italian banks have been around at least 1,000 years, yep. haven't they? Yes. How did we forget? Well, it's worse than that. Do you know how much goes knowledge and technology goes into a cell phone? Yeah, I know. Lots. Okay. We can do that, but we can't. We got the sequence backwards on the money. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. No, but it's true. And all the operations, senior staff and central bank, you know, know it. They all tell you, yeah, you go to the reserve bank and go to the guys run. Yeah, we can't do a reserve drain unless we do a reserve app. <laughs> but they all know this. There's no mystery here. Is this, part, is this part of the reason why bankers, in a sense, you always get the sense of looking at the world in kind of a bemused way, like, really, don't you understand we're making the money go around? Because they are sort of doing something so practical and they understand it in such a practical way. And then yeah. watch everyone in policy and wringing their hands about, oh, where are the dollars going to come from? Well, it's the thing is, the political appointees at the Reserve Bank don't understand it at all. They've all got it backwards. Same with the Federal Reserve. All of the 30 members of the FOMC have no idea that they've got the sequence backwards. What's but it like going to a meeting with them? What's it like sitting between uh -huh. those two groups? Well, that's like I said, I've got to really dumb it down when I talk to them. I mean, I, I met with Chairman Bernanke, okay, back when he was in between. He'd been at the Fed for four years. And then he was at, and it was just four of us at the meeting. He and one of his guys and me and my partner. And he was at the White House Chief Council of Economic Whatever. And then he, next year he became Fed Chairman. So he'd been there four years as Fed Chairman. And he, he made this statement. He said, when, when investment picks up, it'll use up the available funds and drive up interest rates. I mean, I couldn't even answer this. Here's this guy who's been sitting there for four years. The only time interest rates go up is when they vote 
for rates to go up. At the end of each meeting, they vote on rates, up, down, or unchanged. They vote unchanged, they stay unchanged. They vote up, they go up, they vote. There's no investment loanable funds. What is there some visible force is going to raise his hand and say vote up or something? You know, and so I just went on to the next question. I don't even answer. It's just so absurd. Now he's he came from outside the Fed. He's a very nice guy, very studious and no conspiracy in him whatsoever. He's just, you know, just a real straight up academic like you'd meet at university, not making a lot of money, never made a lot of money. And he did his thesis on the gold standard of 1930 in the Great Depression, when things were very different, okay? And he walks into the Fed, and he still has all this stuff about investment, using up loanable funds and driving up interest rates. And, and when it has no application whatsoever to today's monetary. Anyway, that's what I brought to modern monetary theory. That the difference between floating exchange rates, fixed exchange rate, how it applies to policy, how it applies to policy options, and same thing about MMT is, has the only understanding of inflation, which I'll get to in a second. So let's go back to Africa, to your example. So there's a hot tax in everybody's house. They have to pay 30 crowns a month or something mm -hmm. tax. And they go to work in the plantation because they need the money. They don't want to get their house burned. Well, what's the rate of pay? The British have all the crown. It's just a new script they made up. It's not anything not gold or silver or anything, just something they made up. They could pay them one a day or two a day or 10 a day. It doesn't matter, right? No, as long as they get the outcome they want and that is they provision themselves, right. they get to run their plantation. Yeah, so let's say they get the taxes one, they, they say, well, we'll have the wage be one a day, one crown a day. And so the guy's got to pay 30 a month. So he knows his family has to put in 30 days somehow or else he's going to get their house burned down. And they might put in 35, right? And earn some extras in case somebody gets sick. They don't get their house burned down. They can still pay the tax. People will save a little bit. Once they have all this anxiety of you know, being monetized, savings comes very naturally you know, as they uh, get rid of some of that anxiety. It's a massive psychological thing, which is what drives capitalism. It's anxiety. Not, the money's running out every day, being drained out of the bottom of the bathtub through this tax liability. And if you don't come up with it, you're out in the street. And so it's a very powerful force and it's very effective. And look at all the things it's created, but you know, there's, there's a cost on the other side. So they pay one a day. Well, there's a guy who's like raising chickens back in the village. He doesn't really want to go pick coffee. He still needs his one a day, uh, 30 crowns a month, or he's going to lose his house. So he says, okay, how about if I, you go send your family out, work extra, because you don't want to raise chickens or dirty, they bite, all this, and you really don't know what you're doing. I'll raise chickens for everybody. It's more efficient, whatever. You just pay me for my chickens. How many chickens is worth a crown? It's a crown. And the guy who's going in to the, to the uh, plantation says, all right, I could raise my own chickens or I could go into the plantation. If I can buy five chickens for a crown, I'd rather go to the plantation. And the farmer goes, you know what? If I can sell my five chickens for a crown, I'd rather do that than go to the plantation. The government sets the wage, and then the market figures the rest out based on relative value. Yeah, you know, monetization spreads on its own because it's just the most efficient way to solve the problem. Yeah, and then everything does that, and then prices fluctuate around. But it's all relative value versus: Do I want to go on a day at the uh, plantation, or do I want to do this other stuff? And different people have different thresholds for what they like to do or don't. But it's kind of sorts itself out, and it's a work in progress. Okay, but here's the point. And so one crown becomes worth five chickens. 
Like, where did that come from? It came from relative value of the population versus what they're paying down at the, at the plantation, right? So let's say they decide to pay, and let, let, let me change this example to make the math easier. Okay, one crown is worth six chickens. <laughs> let's say they settle on six chickens. Right? Now, it's been a good chicken year, so chickens aren't as valuable. Yeah, right. So now, now the British government, somebody in the government says, you know, you guys have all done a good job. We're gonna give everybody here a raise, pay rate. We're gonna pay you two crown a day. Well, now what's a crown worth? Worth three chickens. Because yep. you only got to work half a day to get it. Six chickens is a full day's work. Three chickens is a half a day's work. Because that two and a half chicken thing would have just been really painful for the half chickens. Yeah, I don't, I don't, want, I don't want any chickens to be harmed in, in recording this example. <laughs> I'm sensitive to animal rights. <laughs> so, so we've gone from six to three. What we've seen is the government paying twice as much. All it's doing is redefining the value of its currency downward. Some people get really touchy about that, debasing the value of uh, yeah. dollars. Yeah, and they, and they used to call that crying down the value of the currency. You know, so they even had words for this. They knew the value came from the king. They called it crying down. When he did that, when he said, I'm paying double, they knew all their money they had was only worth half as much. Okay, and so whatever their savings was, was only worth half as much. That was a risk they took. So, um, but, but he usually didn't do that, but he, he might have for some reason or another. Maybe if he had debts or something, but he usually didn't do that. But the point is, okay, so where does the price level come from? It comes from what the monopolist tells you you have to do to get the thing that you need. He's got the, you know, they've got the Australian dollars. You need them to pay tax. They tell you what you have to do to get them at the point of spending. So what I say is the price level is necessarily a function of prices paid by the government when it spends. And if it just went out and paid double for the same stuff, it's just redefining the value of its currency down. And that is the source of the price level. Okay, the, the Australian dollar is a tax credit. They put a tax liability in everybody's house. You need tax credits to pay it, to get a credit, which is the Australian dollar. That's just the name, what you call it. The thing that can be used to pay taxes, anything that can be used to pay taxes, it's called a tax credit. They give you tax credits for solar or something, it's just as good as Australian dollars. It comes off your taxes the same way an Australian dollar payment would come off your taxes. So they put a tax liability in place, they create unemployment, they then hire the people on their terms, they define what the currency is worth, they set the price level. The rest is set by relative value plus institutional structure that they've set up. There's all kinds of stuff going on. Like if they require legal documents, that's going to affect prices. But we're not, we're not getting into that now. It's all a derivative of state policy. All right, so we know this MMT has introduced the idea that currency is a monopoly, monopolist set price. That's your first day of macro, microeconomics. And people say, oh, what are the micro foundation for MMT? It's the currency is a monopoly. That's the micro foundation of the monetary system and the economy, the monetary economy, is that it's a monopoly, okay? And that takes about 15 minutes to learn monopoly. Then they go to oligopoly, it takes a couple of days. Then the rest of your life is spent learning all the different forms of competition, right? All the way out to perfect, you know, asymptotes and all this perfect competition stuff, right? But the easy one's monopoly. That takes 15 minutes, well, that's the money. So further irony, the money's the easy one, guys, get over it. So we know the source of the price level. Nobody else does. They all talk about inflation expectations and how that changes the price level. 
you tell me how inflation expectations could change the price level in you know, Africa with the British setting the price. You can't. You got the monopoly for all the electric, you set the price. Unless there's competition, five other electric companies and somebody's cheaper and people move to them. Okay, but otherwise, you know, assuming there's no substitution. In this case, with the money, there is no substitution. Then uh, monopolist sets price. Now, they might set it wrong and be forced to adjust it because of the outcomes they don't like, but that's, that's a different matter. They set a price. So, I don't know. Have you been getting much of this from the other interviews you've had? Yeah, this is sort of, you've explained it in a different way around, which is good. Like, I understand banks better why they exist and how they work, which is great. And so, they have, how do they set price? If you borrow the money from the bank, how do they set price? Okay. Well, that That's is why they, their thing of being collateral. in competition with each other to try and well, make no, a profit. Collateral. They have to determine the collateral value. Mm. You have to, okay, and the bank and the government changes it all the time. You have to have, you know, an appraiser and he has to be registered. Otherwise, we're not going to do it. Because if there was no collateral, and there was no standards for lending, the money would go worthless. All right, so the bank... Mm. The, again, the like you said, that's from that up. rule book that they get yeah. given of yeah. you need to look at this loan against the rule book. And then if you're right. happy, you can offer the people money and you offer it to them at an interest rate that you think you can make yeah. money at as a bank. Right. And maybe another bank offers below so that everyone's going by the same rule book and the rule book is changing. Right. right. Now, sometimes they get it wrong and you have enormous blowups and huge loans that go bad and insiders take the money and you, you probably get some, you know, you know, and it puts like upward pressure on prices. Uh, and they might get it wrong with housing and all of a sudden it's too easy to borrow for a house people without credit and prices go up we're not saying they can't get it wrong but they're doing it it's all coming mm. from the state okay so yeah, the bank is only using the rule book and trying to make yes. a profit using the rule book nothing more yes exactly so if you ask any other school of thought new Keynesians or anything well, where, where's the price level come they say well it's it's existing and it changes with inflation expectation. And so the year before and the year before, we know how it went up because inflation expectations change, which is just a, it's just a residual, okay? That doesn't actually cause it. We know now it can't cause anything, but they can correlate it somehow by making it up. Because people actually, guess that's really they, important what you just said. And this is something that keeps yeah. coming up in my head with each economist yeah. we talk about. And that is yeah. causation and correlation. Yeah. Like yeah. I get the impression we've lived in a world of economies being run on correlation with no understanding of the causation. So like you just said, they'll look, well, yeah. what did the market do for the last three years ago? Oh, there's causation. No, it's not. Yeah. You've got data based on the rule book and the conditions at that time. And anytime yeah. the government changes the rule book and either productivity goes up or someone comes up with a new innovation, the game yep. changes. So every yep. time you're balancing a new game and the causation are only the factors in the current version of the game. Is that roughly right? right? That's, that's exactly right. So okay. if you ask, now ask any economist, where, where okay, so where'd the price level come from? They don't have any answer. They only have an infinite regression. We don't know. It's just, we, it's just historical. That's what they say. It's historical. If we, if we started dealing in pennies instead of dollars, it would be a hundred times higher, right? <laughs> yeah. It's just Listen, historical. The thing. You know, historical price makes no sense to me, not being an economist, just because you look, history affects everything. So how does it make sense to them? 
Next time you talk to them, ask them where the price level came from. They don't have any idea. Yeah, but one well, thing so I understand from working in universities is universities teach orthodoxy and you were awarded for your ability to absorb and regurgitate orthodoxy. Yeah. yeah. So if you're successful at uni, you're a successful orthodox thinker. So you don't have, you know, and I've talked to people like Bill Mitchell's student of Marx, you know, and I know others, Ricardo Belfiore, and I ask him, uh, did Marx understand that? And what MMT has contributed here in one little money story, right? Number one, the cause of unemployment by design is taxation, tax levels. There wouldn't be any unemployment. There wouldn't be any people looking for Australian dollars if there was no tax payable in Australian dollars. They might be looking for work, but not. they wouldn't be looking for aid work in Australian dollars. There wouldn't be any. Right? Yeah, they'd so be doing whatever they want to do. They could build a barter economy. They could build a raft yeah. and float away. They could do what they liked because there's no institution having an overarching effect. So right. something you mentioned, no, like when we went, yeah, sorry, there's no first. coercive, there's no coercive monopoly actually on them. So yeah. what we do yeah. is we fix, we introduce a coercive monopoly. Okay, so I said, did Marx understand the cause of unemployment was taxation? They go, no, right? He his whole thing was unemployment and the reserve army, the unemployed, never even knew what it was. Yeah. Okay. Did did Keynes ever talk about this source of value coming from? you know, the monopolist setting price. No. You know, he's made statements like, oh, the state writes the dictionary and things like that. But if he had understood it was from setting price, he would have just said it, written a chapter on it or something. It's pretty important. So, yeah, they can find a passing reference to it, but they can't find any economist, Milton Friedman, any of these guys. Uh, none of them, none of the, Ricardo, none of the people in the history of thought came up with this Okay, they might of how price actually works. Now they found a lawyer named Innes in nineteen hundred wrote about it. He had it exactly right. So it's not like people didn't know this stuff, but they certainly was not known by the leading economists and the leading schools of thought, and certainly not any of the economists in the last hundred years, you know, that are known globally. Can I ask, you know, from let's say like a supermarket's perspective, right? People in business who are setting price, you know, according to let's say inflation, they're they're probably setting that based on some failed or or false assumptions, like we're we're kind of asserting here that they're kind of getting um, the relationship the wrong way around. And does that well, then kind of um, well, let's say you've does got, that you got yeah. So let's say you've got a gasoline station and your wholesale price is $2 a gallon. And you say, okay, well, I want to make 10% profit, so I'm going to sell it at 220. But if the guy next door is selling it at 218, you're not going to sell him fuel. And if the guy next door is selling it at 230, why wouldn't you go 229? Why would you give away 10 cents? So if you're in a competitive situation, you're nobody likes competition, by the way. They all try and get out of competitive situations, either through collusion or buying up the competition and stuff. All the successful companies, none of them actually compete, right? And the, the thing they want, their biggest goal is to like not have to compete so they can have stable margins over time. Or they innovate to come up with new products so they don't have to compete with the products they have. So, uh, so that's if there's competition, okay? And so these other ideas about, well, there's inflation and all that. Well, if you raise your price because you're worried about inflation, the guy next to you doesn't, you don't sell anything. 
if you're in a so the inflation market. is not a reasonable explanation you might say oh we did this to keep up with inflation but that's just a lie you tell to say yeah, so we did it because we're inefficient or our costs went up or we're greedy and hope you can get away with it yeah yeah so in some sense, Sorry. like, you know, we talk in MMT about how governments are not households, but it's kind of funny because I feel like there's, there's two points here that relate directly back to households. One is your, your kind of fantastic kind of famous example, you know, Bill writes about it and everything of um, your, your business cards. So you've used that, to yeah, pay yeah. It, which is hilarious because that is like a household example <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of, of how, of how you yeah. know, money, money works. But, but second to yeah. that is that, this this famous um, quote, I guess, which is the or, or maxim is you know price is what you pay, value is what you get, which is something that you know, most households understand because it has to do with the way that they spend money. I would imagine that most people are aware of that yeah. statement. If they're not, then very famous statement. Where in this sense, we're kind of talking about how the the value is almost is is kind of constant, and then the actual prices are just competitively determined yeah and yes an institutional structure sure mm. no i don't know about the value but the and it's all uh, there's just so many things that go into price you know we had a hurricane here and after the hurricane people could double the price for a generator or triple but they didn't do that they might get 10 or 15 10 percent more or something a little bit because there's huge social pressures on pricing in your yeah. community for everybody you know you've got to live with the people who are buying the stuff you know, some people don't care, but most people do. Or if you're doing a service for somebody and you're washing their car or whatever, and you, you, they're caught and they only got 15 minutes, could you do me a favor and do it right away? Yeah, I'll charge you triple. I mean, you don't do that, right? There's, there's a huge social component that goes into pricing that I don't think economics picks up at all. But and this the, is one, I was the, one, yeah, the one constant is what the state tells you you can get from them. And that's, that's the constant and the rest revolves around that under all kinds of forces, let's say, that are, you know, constantly changing. But that's the core. And no other school of thought would give you that as the core. And, and they're wrong and we're right, because it's a simple monopoly. It's the one you learned the first day in, in micro. Just, there's no dispute here. So they're all wrong. They've been wrong for 100 years or whatever. We're right. And they can't get over that. When I point it out, they just start talking about something else. It's an incredible thing because, you know, we interviewed Zach Carter the other day about his book about Keynes. And he yeah. talks about when Keynes, you know, finished his work during World War One. it's the early 1920s. He's sort of, you know, out of vogue with God, starting to, you know, make money from writing and gets a whole pile of friends and family to put a bag of money together so he can try and play the market. And he nearly loses everything yeah. because he tries to make sense of the market in a rational way and then he has a penny drop moment and he realizes what i need to do is understand what the other investors are going to do right that's who i'm competing with and, and this is, connects to what you're saying about people that yeah. people are going to do all these things that are affected by their need to pay their tax their need to not piss off their customers they need yeah. to not piss off their suppliers. Everything is a balance between this liability to government so that government can provision itself versus all the social norms that we're all interacting with each other, having internalized the need yeah. to pay taxes 
so we better behave in ways where we can continue to be part of this cycle of economic activity. Kind of like a swarm of moths around a flame that's moving all over. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, so did he talk about Keynes versus the classics? Um, a, a bit, but that's kind of the point where I went, we can only interview him for an hour and a half and I can only think oh. of so many questions. So that stuff was interesting, but really what I've got from talking to Stephen and Stephanie and now listening to you is yeah. economics should just sort of, you know, get a scrubbing brush and get rid of about its first 150 years. Yeah. 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 Which is kind of sad. Anything, but... There are things in there to you'll learn and take out, but you've got to translate them into today's context of floating exchange rates, which are relatively new. To jump back to an example you used earlier, we went from five chickens to six chickens just because it was easier to then divide them in half without killing a chicken. Yes, yes. But that also <laughs> talks about an increase in productivity. And something yes. that always seems to be to be missing is okay, MMT can generate well, it says we can make more money, and that's great. Because it means we can fund okay. things. But if Yeah, so let me things, explain that to you. I know what you're getting at. So what I'm I'm giving you the example of our economy, and I look at it like a runner, okay? He's well-trained, he's ready for the Olympics, mm -hmm. but he's got a plastic bag over his head. And so he's not running very fast. And so what we say is, look, if we take this plastic bag over the head, off of his head, he's gonna run faster. And we take the plastic bag off and he runs faster. Okay, did we add stimulus? No, we removed drag. Yeah, improved conditions. That's all you did. Yeah, we removed the drag. We didn't, the potential was always there. So what mm. we're saying in today's context is right now we are operating below our potential. We're the runner with the plastic bag over us. The economy is. And if you take that plastic bag off, he's going to run like you've never seen before. And people go, oh, you're going to add stimulus. It's like he's going to be on drugs. No, we're not adding any drugs. We're removing this restriction on his oxygen supply. There's a, there's a subtle difference there. I don't know how subtle. There's a, there's a serious difference there. Mm. And you have to understand, we're not saying you get something for nothing. We're saying what we've been doing is suffocating ourselves. We've been we're retarding saying, the functioning of the system. Yeah. Yeah, stop suffocating yourself. And so we've been, unemployment is us suffocating ourselves. We put a tax on it in the United States. It creates 10 million unemployed because that's how many people become unemployed to get the money to pay the tax. The government hires 5 million of them and leaves 5 million out there to rot. <laughs> it's, it's like Africa, you know, if they put a tax on everybody's house and then they only hired half the people who showed up for the plantation, the rest didn't have the money to pay the tax. So what do you do? Go, why would you do that? What do you then go burn their huts down? Let's say the total tax is 3000, but you only spend 2000 on people showing up and restrict your supply. Then go burn down whoever's house didn't pay. Like, what's the point? <laughs> They never did that. They lowered the tax before they did that. As long as they had their people on the plantation, it's not some vindictive thing to punish people for not paying taxes and to create unemployment that you're not going to hire. That's, that's not what it's about. The tax creates unemployment. The government hires as many as it wants. If, it, if they're still unemployed, it made a mistake. If they put on a tax that was too large for the number of people who wanted to employ, fine. Either employ them or cut taxes and send them back to where they came from. Yeah, this raises sort of the interesting question of 
you know, we've had massive so, periods of transition, like during the Industrial Revolution, yeah, where yeah, populations yeah. moved to city to jobs that have just been created. So in a sense, it's that period where the runner's training. The economy's working out what it's capable of and works out it's capable of so much more. It can include so many more people. It can make so much stuff. And it's going faster right. and faster and faster. But that is, in a sense, the, the, the runner training not. on his own. But not right. the government helping the run. Yeah. Yeah. The government is a monopolist of, of the supply of the, of the money, the Australian dollars, and it's restricting the supply. So there's not enough for everybody to be employed. You could have hired everybody on the railroads. And I understand they used to do that. Yeah. So the point sure. is when we've seen large amounts of economic activity from the private sector, but it can never yeah. get beyond a point on its own. So you know, we talked about before, you know, prices set by so many different things. So in a sense, there's kind of a degree of free market in our petrol station example of how we got our yeah. petrol price. Right. But it can't be a free market beyond a certain size of the, the bubble because it's only the government that can reduce the suffocation. Okay. So there's a weird and balance, have, isn't there? Okay, this is where Keynes and the classics come in. If you have a monopoly, you don't have a free market. Okay, a monopolist restricting supply, you know, creates excess capacity. That's that's your mic, macro micro one on one course, and that's what you learn in those fifteen or twenty minutes. You know, if you've got all the electricity and you restrict supply, there's going to be a shortage. You're going to nothing anybody can do about it. You're going to take everybody down with you. So, um, so what you have is the monopolist unemployment is the evidence of the monopolist restricting supply. Now, what the classical economic economists have always said is that you will not get unemployment unless there's a monopoly going because the markets will clear. They'll talk about market clearing. The price level will change and this will change. Mm -hmm. We can talk about the interest rate, which is true. That's only gold standard. But give it to them for this thing. Okay, but the markets will clear, okay, unless there's a monopoly. Well, what's the monopoly they point to? Oh, the trade union, there's a monopoly. They're monopolizing the workforce, restricting supply. That's why you have unemployment. There's your monopolist restricting supply. Trade you, or they point to something else that's organized that they don't like. You know, maybe on the supply side, maybe you have collusion in certain big industries. They say that's why you have unemployment because there's a monopolist interfering. Keynes came along and said, no, even without monopoly, you can have unemployment because of how the monetary system worked. Then he explained effective demand, and if there's a shortage, you'll get mass unemployment even without a monopoly operating in the economy. Okay. What they both missed, and Keynes particularly, and that Keynes described perfectly, but he missed it, is that the currency itself is a monopoly. And it was the gov and his effective demand thing is about the government monopolist, the money monopolist, restricting supply. Yeah. So the classics were right. You don't get unemployment without a monopoly, but they didn't recognize the money as potentially being a monopoly. That the it's money was the rare. Okay, so and Keynes said, no, you're wrong. Keynes said, no, you're wrong because of the money, not realizing he was describing a monopoly. And yeah, so, it so now I come along and they tell me you can't have unemployment without a monopoly. I say, you're absolutely right. In this case, the currency is a monopoly. What do you say to that? And they go, oh, didn't think of that. So that is the ultimate irony then of the fact that we live in a period of supposed free marketeers who don't realize yeah. They are the constant monopoly because they're free marketeers who believe yeah. in austerity and surpluses. So it's like you delusional twits. You're balancing yeah. 
two things that together means the runner can't train properly and then you're putting the paper bag over the head too it's it's context right we're yeah. operating in the context of a of a monopoly a mon money monopoly on the whole currency which is everything so in the context of a monopoly you can you know that's an institutional structure you can only get market forces acting within that institutional structure and yeah. directly bumping into it it's like a cage like you put these dogs in the cage and they can run around in this cage but that's where they are that's all they can do yeah. so markets and not, not only that markets can only operate in an institutional structure they can't operate freely without an institutional structure you have to have contract laws you have to tell the truth or get punished or something otherwise you can never trade or trust anybody or do anything so this markets always have to operate in some kind of institutional structure some collective structure that both sides understand and it's a lot easier if you've got a state that said you're going to pay your tax in this currency and here are the rules for banking and let's here put it are this way. for collateral let's put it and this here's a legal system let's put it this way it's a lot more successful in terms of who wins the war yeah you know if if russia had won the war then say oh communism superior or whatever they had it's still it was still a currency monopoly but you know so capitalism as we know it has won the war it's created the highest standard of living so that's why we're doing it but it's got all these but because we don't exactly understand it because we're missing there's a huge gap in our understanding over the sequence that it's the monopoly we don't understand it's a monopoly we don't understand the price level we don't understand and spend first and then you're spending first and then otherwise there's no money to buy bonds right so you have to spend first before taxes can be paid and bonds can be purchased how can you crowd anybody out if you're spending first you yeah know, it's you, only if you're borrowing from overseas in another person's no. currency okay but then yeah but what i'm saying is what we're doing in the us what you're doing in australia they're saying oh you're crowding out the private sector because you're borrowing their money well yeah. we're spending first adding reserves and then shifting those reserves to a securities account we call it borrowing how, how can they crowd anybody else it's a completely inapplicable concept yeah. when you're spending first if i give you something first and then take it back i can't crowd out something else that doesn't crowd anything. You didn't. You wouldn't have had it if it wasn't. If I had just given it to you. So, um, <laughs> so all these things that are happening, supposedly because of the spending, because the sequence is backwards, right? Once you understand the sequence properly, all this stuff is inapplicable. It's not even. It's not even a question about. It. So that leads us to you know two big things, and of course the thing that you know we've already learned so much about is that inflation is the real issue. And that makes sense to me immediately. But the thing, particularly from the Australian perspective, that I want to understand better is how the heck then does international trade work if people understand this stuff better? So I don't mind whichever one you want to do in so whichever order, Warren. Yeah. So um, what was the first one? Uh, inflation or international inflation. trade, yeah. whichever so order. Inflation only, happens, inflation only happens when the government pays the higher price. Yeah. So if the Australian government goes to hire soldiers at fifty thousand, and now they can't get them because the private sector they have to pay sixty. They pay sixty. They're redefining their currency downward. If yeah. they, and the, the best way to understand this is, let's say, they decided not to pay a penny more for anything this year from last year, and all prices went up. Well, well now state spending goes to zero. So now there's this big whopping tax, and they're not spending anything, and the money to pay it has to come from them. So now people are in a mad scramble to get this money. They have to start selling things at lower and lower prices 
until the government buys them. Now, it's, it's bad policy to force that on a population. It's much more civilized policy to just pay the 2% higher price, right? So, um, but, but you have to understand the source. Now, it's not that the government spent so much that prices went up. It means when the government went to spend, it had to pay higher prices or just, excuse me, decided to pay higher prices. Okay, and, and so it's always a conscious decision on the part of the state to, to redefine its currency downward to create higher, you know, to, to pay higher prices and redenominate the currency. Now, inflation is a continuous increase in prices, not a one time. That's why I'm mm -hmm. stuttering around a little bit. But if every year they're indexing wages to something and every year they give everybody a 10% wage increase automatically, they're just redefining the value of the currency downward. Every Latin American inflation was traced by some uh, very good economist named Prevish to government indexation, paying more for the same thing. And it was politically expedient to do that. And naturally it created all that inflation. And when Argentina pegged to the dollar and the inflation went away, it was because they outlawed indexation. Mm. So, so they stopped paying more and so the prices couldn't go up. Then they had other problems, but that's, you know, we're just talking about inflation. So yeah, we, understand we start that. talking about Argentina, we'll be here until 2050. Yeah. Right. And, and so anyway, we understand this. Nobody else does. It's a unique thing. You will not find this in any university or anything outside of an MIT understanding. It just doesn't exist. So the next thing is trade, which is not MMT. I just read something by Milton Friedman, 1978, saw the video, saying the exact same thing I'm going to tell you. I'm going to say it in a little bit different way. So I'll give you the context for the overview. Trade is a productivity story. Okay, unemployment is an unspent income story. It's a, okay, and so they're two different things. You get unemployment because there's a tax and the government hasn't spent anything. So there's no money to pay the tax so you have unemployed. You pay people and they don't all work for the government. Some of them do. The rest are dependent on those people then respending the money that they have left so that they can pay their taxes. Markets, the people want to save. They don't want to buy chickens from the guy so he's stuck. So it's, you know he goes to the coffee plantation. He earns enough to pay his tax and the other guys. But then he doesn't want to buy the guy's chicken. So he doesn't spend his income, he saves. Now the other guy's unemployed, he needs money, he can't sell his chickens, there's no way to get it. So it's an unspent income story, it has nothing to do with productivity. Now, leave it at that for this point I make. Okay. Trade is a productivity story. So let's say I have a box and I can go out and it's a machine that I invented. It, it runs on solar, it you know, doesn't have any uh, input costs or anything. And I put, I go out and I get scrap lumber and I just put it in this box, close the box and out comes a tractor to plow the field. Uh, out comes a washing machine. Okay, uh, out comes new cars. Okay, this is a huge gain in productivity. 200 years ago, we all had to be out plowing the fields. It's 99% of the people were in agriculture or else we starved. And so now we got this machine we've invented and we can put some corn husks in there and out comes a tractor and now we don't have to all go plow. We don't have unemployment because now we have people who can be healthcare workers and teach school and uh, build homes and everything else and be stockbrokers and call us up and annoy us all day long. We couldn't have that when we all had to be out in the field, right? So um, that's great. So now uh, then the box starts producing other things. And pretty soon we only need 
7% of us in manufacturing and 1% in agriculture and the rest of us do all kinds of things, you know, software, and computers, medical research and universities. We can afford all this stuff because this machinery. Okay, so those are productivity gains. The only way you're going to get ahead is by having more people working. That's the only way you can increase your output or by having each person be more productive. There's only two things. It's just point of logic. So now that we've got this box that will do all this stuff, what's the difference if I put it in the box, this machine, and get a car out of, or I send the lumber to South Korea and get a car? Same thing. It's just, it's just an enterprise, just like that box. We could paint the box black, and then we have a black box, right? Which is how it's normally described. So the foreign sector is like this black box where you <clears throat> put stuff in it, that's your exports, and then you get back your imports. Now you're putting pieces of lumber in this box and you're getting back a car. You decide that's a good deal. We don't have to build cars. We just cut down a few trees. Whatever they're doing on the other side, we really don't much care. Maybe they're making you know, toothpicks and chopsticks or maybe they're paneling their homes and, for the mm -hmm. king or something. Who knows? It's not, it's not a problem. All right. <clears throat> now, if we have to put diamonds or gold in there to get cars, we're going, no, we don't want to do that. We'll keep our diamonds and our gold. So you have to, it's a value decision, you know? The exports are the real cost. The imports are the real benefit. The foreign sector is there. Use it to increase your productivity. Now, you also got to worry about if I send them things and they pollute the air and I can't breathe. Okay, that's you know negative thing coming back. It's, you're getting cars plus you're getting choked. It's, you got to add it all up. You've know, you got to put all the factors. If they're employing child labor and that, uh, you know, I don't like that. Okay, that's another factor. And I, I totally sympathize with all that, but just for the pure economics of it, it's just a productivity story. And then you have to assign moral values to what else they might be doing over there to give you the increased productivity. Okay, so, um, and that's what trade is. So imports are the real benefits, exports are the real costs. And that's called your real terms of trade. And all the very old textbooks all had that in there. It's mainstream economics. Krugman had it in his early book. Then he argues with me about it later that I'm wrong. You know, <laughs> Friedman had it, he's dead, so he's not arguing. And, um, and you get all these guys, you get into Australia, oh, well, like what you don't understand is, you know, America is a closed economy and Australia is a small open economy. We can't look at it that way. I go, yes, you can. It's the only way to look at it. You know, the, the, I was at Newcastle at, at Bill's uh, conference. <clears throat> the ships leave Newcastle full of coal and they come, go to Hong Kong and they come back with television set. And certain amount of coal changes, exchanges for a certain amount of television sets. And they don't really care, you know, whether, the, you know, what the price is in Australian dollars or anything. It's a terms of exchange out there, you know, world markets. They don't even care if there is an Australian dollar, if there is an Australian dollar. You know, I said, what matters? So you send out the coal and the television sets come back. What does matter for the Australian dollar for your domestic policy is who has to dig the coal and who gets to watch the television set. That's what your currency is all about. It's not about your terms of trade. That's about somebody that's, else deciding what they what they will pay you for and what they will give you. And that's something I just wanted to sort of you know bring up. The point is our dollar is about how our cycle works within Australia. And that's all yeah, that matters. So yeah, the it doesn't change coming, your real wealth. It doesn't no. change your real wealth. Your real wealth is everything you produce domestically, plus whatever the rest of the world sends you. That's your pile of stuff. Yeah. Minus what you have to send now. Very simple. Yeah. 
That's your real wealth. And you can look long-term, short-term, I understand that. But you have to start with that. And so really what it means is that if we are, you know, say trading with the South Koreans for those nice TVs, again, they've got their own deal going on with their own currency. And really, as long as we can agree how much of our thing we're going to swap for their thing, now we express that in terms of currency. But yes. we need to remember it's about moving those real things around. So the currency, yeah. again, is just a way of counting real resources. It's an account to keep track. Yeah. yeah, the real terms of the trade are the real resources. So that's why it's such a bad deal, I guess, for for the for the the balance of payments to basically be, well, let's say even like out of out of balance. Like it's such a bad deal for for uh, America to be in 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 trade deficit to China. It's such a bad deal for China because that yeah. that yeah. price is or that 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 security or whatever it is that they've got is 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 so relative to the a, a completely different economy they have no control over. It's like a, a massive risk. Yeah, now you have to think strategic risks and things like that. That's, a, that's mm. all, you know, I agree. I write about that all the time. Mm. If you, you know, you don't want to be dependent on your weaponry for foreign sources because you might go to war with them. You know, here we mm. have a, an epidemic where you need things domestically and you can't source them from China. So, you know, if that's a, so you have to strategically pay more, have a lower standard of living in return for security on some items. But other items you don't, in which case you just get the best price. So uh, now the other thing is like, why do the other countries do this? And it's because their exporters are in control. And for the exporter, he only has a small fraction of the workforce, but it's still large numbers of people, very visible, organized. He's got a lot of money. He's got a lot of money for corruption and to keep politicians thinking that, you know, exports are a good thing and imports are a bad thing and to have export-led growth. And World Bank and all this is all pushing export weight growth because under the gold standard, that's how you got more gold. But they just keep that whole illusion going, and maybe they even believe it. I don't know. And uh, but they don't. The exporter could care less about the domestic economy, except he wants cheap labor, and cheap materials. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have a domestic producer who sells domestically, he doesn't care if wages go up as long as they go up the same for all the competitors. Then they all just raise their balanced. Money. Yeah. You're okay. He's, he's okay with it. So he doesn't have the, but the exporter doesn't want wages to go up because he's selling to somebody else. The guy he's selling to isn't getting the money to pay, to be able to buy his products. He needs to keep domestic wages down. So this whole austerity thing, the way I see it, is exporters in, in control directly, indirectly, whether they know it or not. So we had President Obama. You can look up his statements. He said, we are consuming too much and not exporting enough. We need to consume less and export more as a nation because we've got this big trade deficit, budget deficit. And he hires Jeff Immelt, who is head of General Electric, which is probably our largest exporter, as head of the Economic Commission or whatever policy thing that he set up. And then it's the same thing in Germany and Japan and probably Australia. The exporters probably have enormous political power. They shouldn't even have to see the massive problem here. And this is where yeah. we fixate on, you know, we talk about here at least having a two-speed economy. There's mining yeah. and then everything else. Whereas the mining yeah. is just, let's dig up resources we only have once and shovel them on ships as fast as possible, desperately, as if it matters. What only matters to the people who are getting rich off them now right. and getting that's rid of we, real resources that's how we save, later. That's how we save for a future. We dig up all the resources and burn them. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's saving for the future because we're getting yeah. money. Yeah, I totally miss this real now. Okay. One thing that you know then confuses this for me. Well, no, it doesn't confuse it, but I think it's the other thing. When you get a currency that almost has value like a real thing, the American dollar worldwide. You know, we will send goods around the world, but who really wants Australian dollars other than Australians who have to pay tax? But the Anybody. American dollar has taken on a role. Well, you can buy things in Australian dollars anyway. And if I have the American dollars in Australia, I can't spend them. No, but I can't spend my Australian dollar in America either. But American dollars right. have a value worldwide. Well, so do Australian dollars. They're quoted on the same Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg Terminal. Yeah, but the Australian dollar versus the US dollar is 68.97 today, whatever. Yeah. How does one currency then almost become like it's a commodity? Like it becomes a real thing. The American it dollar, it's almost like it's become a real thing. It's just an illusion. It doesn't. So that's a perception thing that is beneficial for the US economy? You know, it, currencies, people, uh, China, Japan, Germany had $50 billion before the euro. Exporters hold US dollars in reserve. So it's called reserve currency. And it's because they're targeting their exports towards the US. Okay, in order for, to be a net exporter, right, you've gotta be holding the other guy's currency. Otherwise, how, how, you know, how do you net export? Uh, so so it's, it's what you do in order to have the cash available to get your product into yeah. that market. So Germany, okay. Germany before the Euro, during the crisis in Italy, bought a ton of Italian lira so that the German exporters could sell to Italy. <laughs> they don't care about their own population or buying a bunch of wallpaper. They just wanted to do that because that's the guys who are in control. You know, and so um, if, you, if you trace the money through by buying you know, like when Japan buys dollars and sells yen, they're keeping the yen low enough versus the dollar, or keeping it from going up so that the real wages stay where they are, which is low enough to be competitive. If so it's they all don't, about manufacturing the export conditions they yeah. want, which then has a big cost on their society. Right. You depress yeah. domestic demand by keeping real wages down. That's one way to do it. And the direct way to do it, that absolutely forces it. Let's say you're in India. You've got a construction business and you retire and you sell it for a hundred, you know, for a billion rupee or whatever it is. And that's a hundred fifty, whatever it is, million dollars. And now you're retiring. So you go to your banker and he says, okay, well, you should have, you know, a third of it in US dollars and some of it in Australian dollars. And they go buy the JP Morgan index. And so he buys $50 million worth of US treasury bills. Okay. How does he get them? He has to sell rupee to somebody who then gives him dollars in exchange, you know, at the going rate. And so what are the dynamics that drive that transaction? If you trace it down, the dynamics are somebody in India has to sell something in the U.S., get paid in dollars, give this guy the $50 million, take his rupee and pay his workers. Okay, that's how the chain, when you get to the end of the chain, that's what's going on. That's the only way it can happen. You could go through credit or borrowing from the IMF, but just in, in raw terms of trade, that's how it happens. So I'm not, I don't need to be totally exclusive here because you can have deferred things that defer that process. And everything. But that's how, that's fundamentally how it happens. And so every time when the Australian dollars in the JP Morgan World Index, 
all these people all over the world are now saving in Australian dollars for their Australian stocks or bonds or something. That allows Australia to run a trade deficit. And you're a reserve currency in that sense, because you're being held as reserves for this guy in India by 50 million US dollars and 2 million Australian dollar assets, whatever it is, you know, based on the JP Morgan weighting, based on GDP or something. Right. And so you're able to run large trade deficits, and so is the UK. So anybody else who gets included in this JP Morgan World Index, suddenly all the world's savers they want to save that currency and allow that company country to export. Yeah. And instead we freak out about it. I mean, like it's, it's, it's unbalanced. Yeah, it's not it is balanced because and I that's the other thing I said. All right, let's look it up. Typical example where um, you uh, buy a car that's made in Japan. So you go to the bank in Australia. Which bank do you use in Australia? Borrow the money. Oh, Commonwealth, NAB, Westpac. Okay, so you go Westpac and you say, I need to borrow $30,000 to buy this car. And they say, okay, the loan's approved. And you buy the car. Now, you would rather have the car than the money. Okay, so you just bought a car from Japan. The trade deficit just went up by $30,000, right? So they say, oh, that's a, there's an imbalance of $30,000. I say, all right, well, let's look at the players. Let's find the imbalance. Well, you're, you're not out of balance. You'd rather have the car payment than the money. Or you went to, uh, than the, you'd rather have the car and the payment. Okay. Otherwise, you went to Dunning. You're in balance. You signed the note. You borrowed the money. You're in balance. City, uh, Westpac would rather have the loan than not have a loan. They, they voluntarily made the loan at their interest rate. Okay. So they're in balance. They made the loan, created a deposit, gave it to you. You borrowed the money. That's what you, you know, your preference is to have the car plus the loan. So you're in balance. You have a car and a car loan. You're not out of balance. And then uh, Japan decided they would rather have the money than the car and save the money. That's part of their $2 trillion of savings, whatever, government savings, to help support Toyota, their export, because that's their politics. All right. So who's out of balance? Japan would rather have the, the money than the car. You'd rather have the car and, and the loan, you know, and with the loan. And the bank would rather have, you know, is happy. Banks in balance, they got the loan and deposit. Nobody's out of balance. Yeah, everyone's happy with the deal they made and got what they wanted. Now, yeah, say, we might want to have. Done, it was all done voluntarily at market yeah. prices as a final transaction. They, they knew they were getting Australian dollars when they sold the car. And yep. that they have so much inflation and so much interest and, and you know, there's fires into all that. And all that was part of the market price. And, and the market's prices are in difference levels. And so there's no trade imbalance. It's not possible. So we can be unhappy we didn't make the car in Australia, but that's got nothing to do with the deal that happened. The Japanese can be unhappy about you know, wage stagnation to make sure they can export, but that's got nothing to do with the car sale. Yeah. yeah, the deal you just made did not create an imbalance. No. It might have created you know, unhappiness. You know, if you buy a gun and go out and shoot somebody, they're unhappy, but there's no, mm. you didn't create a trade imbalance. <laughs> to jump back to your example then of talking about Lira, you know, when I was reading in one of your books about yeah. you going to Italy to help the Italians, you know, the Italian yeah. government understand how money works. Do you just want to quickly explain that? Because I think that's just the most amazing example of seeing what happens when people get this stuff. Yeah. So back then we could buy Italian bonds in Lira that paid 
they were short term. And we could borrow the money from the banks over there uh, and borrow the lira from the banks at 10%. So if we borrowed, I don't know, it was like 1,700 to one or something, but if we borrowed a billion lira at 10 and loaned them to the government at 12, we would make 2% of a billion lira, 20, whatever that is. And that would be worth so many dollars in profit. Now, if the lira went down, our profits might be small. If the lira went up, our profits would be large, but it was still a profit, no matter how you look at it. We're going to make 2% profit in lira. And we could, we could calculate what that profit would be, and we could sell those lira and put it in dollars if we wanted to. But the problem was everybody thought the uh, Italian government was going to default, just like today. Except back then, they had their own currency, the lira, which wasn't the euro. So, um, so I'm thinking, I can't do this trade because if they default, I'm going to lose all my funds money. But if I could come up with a reason they weren't going to default, we, we could have a good year for this fund. You know, we could make 10, 15% returns. You know, we're, it's not extraordinary because you're only making a couple of percent. It's high leverage. So you're limited down to people, but still a lot of money. And so I started thinking about it. And I said, well, why don't, and I looked up the history and nobody with their own currency had ever defaulted in the history of the world. And there were a couple of uh, exceptions. In 1943, Japan defaulted to the United States in yen, wouldn't pay. Like, okay. <laughs> so it wasn't like they couldn't pay it, they would pay. Uh, they had some defaults in Latin America, Brazil or something, where the inflation got so high that the bondholders who had you know, millions of dollars worth of bonds, but they were in pesos, by the time the inflation was over, were only worth two or three cents so they never bothered to collect. So that was considered a default. Like, okay. So you could never find any real time when there was a default. And it always made more sense for these governments who had their own currency to pay rather than default. And they said, well, the answer was, that, well, they, the reason they had to default was because they could always print the money. So I'm talking to S&P and the ratings agencies, and Moody's. I said, well, did anybody ever print the money? And they go, well, no. <laughs> So, so I said, all right, well, that can't be the reason because somebody would have done it once if that was the reason. And I was just thinking about it. And then it occurred to me, I was sitting with Tom Schoke, my researcher. And I, it just dawned on me. I said, Tom, you know, if I buy treasury securities from the Fed or if I buy them from the treasury, it's all the same thing. The money goes to the same place. They debit my bank's account at the Fed and credit, you know, the, somebody on their side of the ledger. I own treasury securities, which are dollars in uh, you know, the securities account at the Fed either way. Is functionally, they're functionally identical to us in the private sector, everyone in the private sector, whether we buy from the Fed or the treasury, we don't really care. That's just the argument on their side of the ledger. It's like if I'm buying something from you, I don't really care if it comes out of your right pocket or your left pocket, it's the same, buying the same thing. And, uh, and you're gonna hold it for me in the same wallet. So it's like, uh, you know, no, I said, so if there's no difference for us, functionally, there can't be any difference. The only difference could be how they account for it on their side of the ledger. So where the feds operate selling, buying and selling treasury securities, that's monetary policy to control interest rates. When the treasury does it, it's to fund expenditures. So, so obviously, it's just monetary. fund expenditures. That's the one that's right. It's all monetary. So when the treasury is doing it, that's monetary also. It's just what we call draining reserves, shifting dollars from reserve accounts to securities accounts to the Fed as part of the interest rate 
support program. So the Fed would sell securities to make sure rates don't fall. The Treasury selling securities, the same thing. It, they're functioning to make sure rates don't fall, that they hit their rate targets. And that's the correct spot, obviously. And then from that understanding, all the rest follows that I've told you tonight. The whole thing followed from there. That was kind of the breakthrough that it's monetary, not fiscal. It's never to fund expenditures. It's always to offset operating factors to support interest rates is how they say it in the Fed. So anyway, so now here we have Italy. We know the reason they're not going to default is because they spend first, then they sell securities to support interest rates, not to get the money because they spend it first. Same thing with the Fed and the Treasury. They spent the money first. The Fed sells the Treasuries to, so you can earn interest. People can earn interest. Or the Treasury sells it so people can earn interest. It doesn't matter. They're not going to default because they spend first. So I had Harvard Management. I was was one of our clients. And they, they always, they worked with us for a long time on compiling these trades. We, we were a fairly large material factor in, in the endowment fund they had back in the 90s in terms of coming up with these ideas to, to uh, grow the fund. So it, was, it was a very successful time for them. And they had enorm, you know, enormous contacts. I didn't have any contacts. So they, they said, okay, well, they get it. So now we all want to buy Italian security. Why don't we set up a meeting with the finance ministry in Italy and discuss it with them to make sure they understand it so they don't push the wrong buttons accidentally, which is very possible. So we said, great. So they set up a meeting and I go over there with one of them. Uh, and uh, we go into the finance ministry and it's Luigi Spaventa, economics professor. He's got a three-piece suit on the pipe and he looks very much like you would imagine Keynes to look like. He was a Keynesian, I think. And I go, uh, and everybody was there looking for their tax refunds because they were way behind on tax refunds. They only had two people doing it in the whole country and global investors weren't getting their tax refunds. And, and there were women. One of them was home pregnant and the other one was trying to keep up. So you thought there's two more Americans complaining about when are they going to get their tax. So anyway, so I said, this is just a rhetorical question. Don't answer it. But why is Italy selling BTPs, CCTs, government bonds? Is it because the treasury, because you need to get the lira to spend? Or is it because you've already spent the lira, which adds reserves to the banking system, and we cause the rate to go to zero? You want the rate to be at 12%. That was the policy rate. So therefore, you have to sell securities to support the rate of 12%. And um, he looks at me and pauses for a few seconds, and he says, no, the rate won't fall to zero. It'll fall to half a percent because we have a support rate. I said, Perfect. This guy understands monetary operation. Never been to another central bank where, you know, before where the, I've been to central banks, but I've never been to a finance ministry where they understood monetary operations. This guy got it. And then he just jumps up out of the seat and he goes, yes, and they're making us act pro-cyclical. And he starts going into this rage about the IMF requiring austerity and the whole thing because of all the debt numbers. And, you know, we went in there. It was really dark days. Everybody was sure everybody was going to fall. It was an economist and Rudy Dornbush was always, you know, just in front of me. His paperwork was always on their desk explaining why they were going to fall everywhere I went. Really, it's like I'm following this guy around. And we were supposed to be there 20 minutes. He starts calling in people from all over the finance ministry and they come in and they're making us cappuccino and they're all celebrating. And two hours later, we have to get out of there to go to our next meeting. A week later, Italy announced no ex extraordinary measures will be taken. All payments will be made on time. They understood they're just crediting yeah. and debiting. We were on their own spreadsheet, just like we, we do today. 
So that was that story. So I hope that was worth your time. <laughs> no, it absolutely was because that to help people understand that once you get this, your yeah. gun, your country can go from we are in the poo. Yeah. To cappuccino. Yeah. From poo to cappuccino. There, there's the book title. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Look at the US. They just authorized three trillion fiscal adjustment, fifteen percent of GDP. That, that, yeah. You know, they used to argue over two tenths of a percent, like not a year ago. Yeah. Like oh, it's gonna bank up the country and all this stuff. All of a sudden yeah. it's like <laughs> Yeah, but it's amazing, like when we were talking to Zach Carter, how he described it in his book was that it, it became sort of a reactionary Keynesianism. Every now and then when things are really bad, put a heap of money in and try and stabilise things, but then forget you've done it. Yeah, yeah. So the problem is, you know, we, we've done it at the moment here in Australia. We've pumped a ton of money in. It's had a really positive social and economic impact. Yeah. And our deadline now must be 80 days away where we will return to normal neoliberal programming and yeah. we'll end up repeating something like the GFC. Well, no, we did okay out of the GFC because our government pumped a ton of money in and stopped it getting yeah. bad and proportional to the size of our economy, it worked. I think this time it will look more yeah. like the US experience of the GFC where because it wasn't enough money and it wasn't continued, the recovery will be like the iron wheels rusted to each other and they just can't turn. Uh, you know, it's even worse, and maybe some people don't consider it worse. But suddenly, you know, the cities have never had air this clean, right? Yeah. So now, oh, now we, it, we did it by eliminating non-essentials. Yeah. So now, now we want to bring back the non-essentials and, and ruin the air again. It's like, what sense does that make? Like if it was essentials and you have to have them, these are non-essentials, guys, by definition, you know, by proclamation. We've only eliminated non-essentials. Well, fine. You know, now we can weigh non-essentials against, you know, air quality, right? Yeah. We can weigh non-essentials against global, you know, turning up the temperature. Yeah. What's more important, the temperature or non-essentials? How are, how are non-essentials more important than anything? <laughs> you know, there's certainly a lot more. There's got to be things that are more important than non-essentials. Well, the reality is all the things to make a cappuccino can be delivered by one delivery van instead of 50 cars sitting in a traffic jam. We know how the world should run. Look, six months ago, I, somebody asked me about this stuff before all this. I said, I think we could save at least, we can improve 50% right now just through conservation by eliminating non-essentials. I didn't know anything mm. about COVID. Oh, no, how, how can you do that? I start giving examples about stuff. That, you know, nobody will ever do that. And all of a sudden, we do it. <laughs> you know, And that's more than we can reduce by every green program that ever invented. If we did none of those except yeah. eliminate non-essentials, we'd make more progress than we could with all these proactive stuff, things, programs to like green energy and all that. We just do no energy. We don't need all this energy. Our energy consumption's down. Nobody's suffering for it. Yeah. People might be bored, but they'll get over that. Yeah. Well, suppose we banned advertising on the internet. How much electricity consumption would drop? We'd be cut out. Huge, right? Hmm. You don't need all this high-powered stuff. Suppose we said, okay, a cell phone and a computer can only have five watts of input, not 15 or 20. We're talking about vast numbers of kilowatts saved. Hmm. Okay. Well, what do you need that extra computing power for? Do your emails. We, we, you know, we don't need anything. We need a thousandth of what we have. 
mean yeah. enough because what would they call the old ones four tens or something 64 bit whatever or the old computers that was yeah, 386 is the things from the early 90s yeah, 386. When, yeah. Yeah. 386 is still overkill for email unless you're floating on photographs and advertising and videos yeah, it's when we're doing what we're off. doing now, where we need audio and video going around the world. But that's an exceptional yeah. situation. Yeah, or if you and I were in black and white instead of color, I mean, it hey. saves enormous amounts. How important is us to be looking at each other in color? I, mean, I only do it because sighted people like it. Yeah, but if we all have to agree black and white in collective action, yeah. and now we can, now we can survive as a planet. It's like okay, big deal, right? And so there's so many things that are like entirely different this world. Consumed. Marginal gains. Yeah, yeah. You just yeah. do it little by little bit, but across the board. Mm. Yeah. But some of them are just big chunks. You know, if we go to a permanent zero rate policy, the whole bond trading industry goes away. It's already way down. You're eliminating bond traders at Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan. Because with rates are zero, there's just not much to do. So if you just leave them permanently at zero, all that goes away. And that's huge amounts of resources trading. If you don't let banks trade with each other and just let them all have debits and credits at the central bank, they don't need that many interbank markets. We're talking about vast swaths of energy and vast sources of distributional issues. All, these people are making millions of dollars a year just even in the lower position doing this stuff that doesn't need to be done. Let them go out and cure cancers. So many, uh, you know, so you save energy and, you know, the whole financial sector is probably entirely parasitic at least 90 percent right well that's you interesting know, you say that you come from the trading perspective i was going to ask you along something yeah. something along the lines of that it's like yeah it's all make work you know it's all creative it's busy work yeah. the government decides to sell bonds that they don't need and now we get all this work that we can make money on it doesn't need to be there it's a huge drain of real resources well, it's, it's a, a complete waste of human endeavor it's an interesting but it, but you're an interesting case in this in the sense that you know let's say neoliberalism has been fantastic for um, traders uh, and and people who have participated in the financialization of our economies to make money, and you're really approaching it from the complete opposite perspective, which seems like a good yeah. a good argument for encouraging those people. It's like well, there are opportunities to make money going in a, a direction that is going to be better for humanity, let's say? Yeah. Well, let's say the state, the government decided to have national video game competitions. And, you know, the winner every year would get $2 million and $10 million. And they paid all the way down. So everybody who played got at least $20,000. Okay. How many people would be in video games and not, we'd all be starving, right? <laughs> <laughs> right okay so the institutional structure can create you know we only need one percent to grow the food and seven percent to manufacture we ever got eight percent of the population manufacturing the room would be filled with junk you wouldn't be able to get out and so the rest all is all the institutional structure directs where it goes oh let's put all these laws in now we can have lawyers and courts and all this stuff we don't need any of that unless there's some marginal gain that's kind of totally out of control probably 90 percent of that could be you want a clean sheet of paper with the legal system? Cut down the real consumption of that sector by including labor by a huge amount, probably 70, 80, 90%. That's fascinating. That yeah. It comes it, back to what we were talking about with the runner example, with the bag on the yeah, head. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. This runner's at about 10% because of all the weight we've 
put on. Yeah, but it's also the fact that the runner will keep trying to train with the bag on their head. They'll keep yeah, trying yeah. to get faster, and it perverts yeah. what the runner is. Yeah, you yeah, really want yeah. the runner to run well. It has to be the state taking the bag off. Yes, you can't go runner run better. And what we're asking from so many things in the economy is runner run better, but the bag's not coming off. So, yeah, so I say, perverted look, by it. People say you add stimulus. I always say no. You remove drag. Yeah. So it's always about removing. The state can't add. It can add stimulus doing uh, primary research and whatnot. But in terms of fiscal adjustment, what it's doing is removing drag. That seems a brilliant place to say. Speaking to you has not been a drag. Thank you very <laughs> much, Warren Mosler. You're very welcome. And uh, anytime. Thank you. Thanks again. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the Ozcast Network. Peace out. Thank you.